Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. And now I'm going to let you know, as you've probably already figured out, that we have a special guest lecturer today, Dr. Rob Weiss. He's the author of this book and Sex Addiction 101 and Out of the Doghouse, which we saw earlier. And he is, those of you who don't know, he is the face of sex addiction treatment and recovery, period. You know, he's the guy that's, he's the guy that's on TV. He's the guy that writes the books. He's the guy that trains other therapists. So, king sex addict. <laughs> yes, he's the king of sex addicts. And and I've been lucky enough to work with Dr. Rob for uh, how long, Scott, have we been lucky enough to work? I think it's I think we started in 2010. Maybe. Has so it been that long? <laughs> probably longer. But yes. Yeah, it might time. be. Well, I've known you since 2000, but uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I've known you 20 years. So anyway, um, this is one of his favorite talks to give, is about denial. <laughs> So I'm just going to turn us over to Dr. Rob and um, get ready, people, because you're, you're about, you're, it's going to be a bumpy ride. So buckle your seatbelts and uh, dig in. So go ahead, Doc, Dr. Rob. Well, thank you, Scott, for that um, tentative introduction. I feel like I've been <laughs> totally set up now. I wanted to say just a couple of things to start um, related to some things that were said here. And First of all, Scott brought up the idea that this is not therapy. And I was actually writing all your therapists this week on Listserv and some other places. And what I... The way I think about this, because this is how it goes down in residential treatment, is this is supplemental to therapy. A lot of you go to outpatient work, never get these lectures, uh, where we, the reason we give these lectures is because this is information you don't get in outpatient therapy. If you come into residential somewhere, you'll probably hear some of this. I think people want to learn on multiple levels. You want to learn the emotional level. You want to learn on the psychological level. You want to learn on the thinking level. And uh, this is more like, okay, this is what's about. This is where you can put the pieces together. This is just sort of chapter and verse. And that's what this whole series is about. So this is supplemental to therapy. Also, I wanted to say that just to the gentleman who had feelings about whatever I said in another meeting somewhere else, I call him as I see him. I'm only given the information I'm given, and I respond to the information. When I'm speaking in larger formats, like Friday night group on In the Rooms or sexual relationship healing on Mondays, I'm not actually speaking about your specific situation. When someone asks me something, it's really generalized to everybody. But I understand that wives respond, you guys respond, and you may or may not like what I have to say, and what I say is take what you like and leave the rest. I'm not perfect. I don't know everything, but I have done this for 25 years with a license and 35 years in recovery. I entered 12-step uh, in December 10th, 1985. So I was 26 years old when I started this program. I never left um, and made a career out of it, obviously. Um, 
I'm not going to give any of my history. I'm working down just to see whatever I want. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say is um, some people ask me about gender pronouns, like husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. I don't know who's queer here. I don't know who's into trans here. I don't know what you're into. So I use generally heterosexual models, but that's not what I mean. You can pick whoever you are and fit yourself into it. It's just easier to pick one model. So let's get started. In order for me to start with you guys, I need you to take out pen and paper. This is something, if I were at work, I would put it on a board. But I did not want to do slides with you. I wanted to directly interact with you. And that means I have to, you have to do the writing and I have to do the talking. So what I'm going to ask you to do first is I'm going to write you. So you all know what the difference between horizontal and vertical. I never do. But I think horizontal is like this way and vertical is like this. So I want you to write vertically D-E-N-I-A-L. So write it as an acronym going vertically with a D at the top and the L at the bottom. And then we're going to fill in what each of those mean. So the D is for don't. The E is for even. The N is for no. You can take, it's a no like I know things. So K-N-O-W, no. The I is for I. The A is for am, A-M. And the L is for lying. So this really is the meaning of denial. Don't even know I am lying. And what that means is I'm saying things that I believe that aren't true. It's not just that I tell other people that, you know, obviously I tell a wife, I tell a girlfriend, I tell, oh, you got to believe this. And they, you know, I'm lying, but I lie to myself. And that to me, especially around profound life experiences is a key sign of addiction. When I am not seeing what's best for me and my family or, or my life, but more just this one narrow thing that I want to go do. And then I justify everything in order to be able to do it. What I'm saying to myself is, oh, that won't be a problem and they won't find out and I can handle this and I can live. That's denial. Thinking that you can do the things we do and it won't cause problems or that we can get away from it or away with it, that's denial. So don't even know I am lying is the best way I can think of it. Now, let's talk about our bodies. We have physical denial. And I'll give you an example of that. A long time ago, I broke my arm. And I thought, as it was happening, I heard the crack. I was like, this is really fucked up. It's going to hurt. And, but it didn't. And if ever you have had a broken bone, you know that right away it swells up, but it doesn't hurt right away. The, you know, it, it kind of gets numb and it ain't great, but it feels like a motherfucker about an hour later. But in the beginning, it's kind of numb. That is nature's way, as you probably know, of allowing us to get to safety. So when I have a physical shock to my body, if I'm able to get up and move, I have enough time to not be in extreme pain to get myself to help. Because if we were in the pain of that broken bone the moment it happened, we'd be paralyzed by pain. In other words, our body allows us to experience denial, the denial of that pain long enough to get to help. Are we injured? Yes. Do we have a tremendous amount of pain? No, because the brain's blocking it to allow us, it's giving us denial. So there's physical denial. It exists so that we can tolerate a set of difficult physical circumstances to get ourselves to health. And then there's emotional denial and there's healthy denial. So let's try this one. Sad story, but I'll make it up. A mom just saw her three kids off to school and she's getting ready for her day and there's a knock at the door and it's a police officer. He says, I've got some really bad news for you. You're, there's an accident in the bus and your children. And she says, what's the first thing she says? You can't tell me, but I know. 
no, no, that didn't happen. It wasn't my children. I just saw them a few minutes ago. Now there's the police officer. There's sirens going by. We know something has happened. But when someone comes up to you with shocking information like that, the first thing we do is deny it. Because the first stage of grief, first stage of grief, if you go through the stages of grief, is denial. That can't be true. It can't be uh, not my kids, not today. You know, that is just like physical denial, the emotional denial of a shock. Physical shock to the body, we have a period of time to get to safety. Physical shock emotionally, we also have time to kind of get it together and get some help because we can't quite figure out what's happened and it's confusing and we're pushing it away and that gives us enough time to get help. So denial serves a really useful function. It allows us to tolerate really difficult experiences until we're able to get to help. That's healthy denial, both emotional and physical. However, we interact with it in a slightly different way. We use denial, not for survival, but to, to be able to practice and engage in behaviors that we know are not good for us, that we know are hurting our family. None of you None of you walk into this not, well, unless you're a sociopath, none of you walk into this thinking, oh, I'm going to hurt my spouse and they're going to find out right away. And in fact, I'll show them. <laughs> none of you walk into it thinking, oh, they're just going to, you know, I'll just show them what I'm doing online and I'll just introduce them to my girlfriend. And why don't you do that? Because you know what would happen to your lives if you did. So you deny the reality of what would happen if you put your life into one integrated piece by keeping it separated. This is over here, and this is over there, and they don't meet, and they're not connected. So as long as I can keep these two parts of my life apart from one another, home, family, connection, love, if you have that, or school, education, career, or dating, whatever that is for the single people, and what I do sexually is over there. And as long as I can keep them separate, then I can stay in denial. Because as long as this bad thing doesn't happen, as long as these people don't find out about that, or these people don't go over here and tell them about that, then I can stay in this idea that none of this is going to hurt me, that I can do things and not hurt other people, that I can, when I'm, off, when I'm off on my own, what people don't see, what doesn't hurt them. And that is my fantasy, because all of you know, I hope by now, that whether our partners know about it or not, whether our families and friends know about it or not, it hurts people. In fact, it hurts us. And I want to say something briefly about that. So I use this story a lot. I had a guy who was asked to help out with his kids. His wife was out and she wanted some help with the kids. So he spent the whole afternoon with them and he played with them and he played games with them. You know, he just had a great time with his kids. And his wife came back in the afternoon and she said, oh my God, I, I love you so much. Look at you with the kids. You're exactly the kind of spouse I wanted to have. You know, somebody who braces our kids, engages them when, we're, when, when I'm not around and you're just fat. You know, I love you. And he thinks to himself, well, see this guy, he was at a strip club on Friday. This is Saturday. So while she's wrapping her arms around him and saying, I love you so much, and you're the best dad, and you're the guy I've always wanted, what do you think he says to himself? Probably something like, if she knew where I was yesterday, she wouldn't be saying those things. If she knew who I was with, she, you know, in other words, when we're getting some of the things that everyone really wants, that all of us want, validation, attention, appreciation, being told that we're important and special, that's the stuff we really want. But when we're acting out, we don't believe within ourselves that we deserve it. We have reasons within ourselves to say, oh, that's nice. But if they knew this, they wouldn't say that. And in that way, we cut ourselves off from the lifeblood of what keeps people healthy, which is love by family, love by friends, because we don't believe them. 
Well, how could we? If they knew what we were up to, they wouldn't love us. Of course, that's not necessarily true. They'd probably be pretty pissed. But we keep ourselves cut off from the reality of how our life would go if it was one continuous piece. Let me tell you why this word integrity. I'll just mention something about it. We named our treatment program Seeking Integrity. I've had other programs called Sexual Integrity. The word integrity means a lot to me. And it has a lot to do with our work. Because integrity comes from the word integration, to bring separate parts together. That's what it means. Could be racial, could be, could be whatever. Disintegration, bringing parts together, disintegration. So guess what? We are disintegrated. Disintegrated. We have different parts of our lives that we live out, and there's one over here, and there's one over here, maybe there's one over there. Like maybe you have a girlfriend, and you're married, and you're seeing a sex worker. Three parts. Isn't that nice? So um, as long as we can keep those parts separated, we can keep acting out as addicts, but we don't experience integrity ever because the feeling of integrity comes from being integrated, meaning I have one life. There is nothing that I wouldn't mind anyone seeing or knowing about. I mean, granted, I wouldn't want you guys seeing me taking a shower. It's really none of your business. I wouldn't want you to see making love to my spouse. But if, I, if you heard, oh, Rob has sex, Rob who takes a shower. You wouldn't be like, oh my God, I can't believe he does that because there's nothing out of integrity. You know, those are private things, but there's nothing out of integrity. I'm still the same person. But if you heard, well, Rob was at a sex club last night with three prostitutes, that probably would be out of integrity because I live my life this way. And yet you'd find out something about me that doesn't match up with any of that. And I'm trying to keep it a secret. So in our addictions, we are disintegrated because we have different parts of ourselves that only we know about. And this disintegration allows us to do what we want to do, but it keeps any real nurturing, real love, real care for ourselves away because we already, for sure, have low self-esteem. We already walk around with a lot of shame. And we already walk around, many of us, thinking, God, I'm a shit. I can't believe I do this thing. What? Or after acting out, why don't I stop? Why am I keep doing this? And we always have a reason to be mad at ourselves disintegration escalates that because it doesn't allow us to get any validation from anywhere. Even at work, it's like, oh, you did a great job on that project. Well, yeah, I guess I did, but I kind of kicked out a few hours at lunch to go see a, you know, a sex worker. We know who we are. We know what we're doing in it, and no one can ever fully validate or love us when they don't know the truth. And by the way, this leads into the question of what is intimacy and vulnerability with a partner. You know, some of you think, and I get, oh, intimacy is sex. I guess if you're a guy, you'd probably think that. Women don't think that. Intimacy is, you know, somebody who's hot and wants me. No, intimacy is not that. I'm going to really give you a definition so you know. Intimacy is being known fully by people who love you. Letting yourself be known with no secrets, with nothing to hide, and taking the risk that this person who you so want to love you and be with sees all of you, everything, and may not decide to be with you. They may decide that that's not what I want. That's intimacy, that you're willing to take the chance that the people in your life, by knowing everything about you, would still want to be with you and love you. And you know, some would and some wouldn't. But intimacy is allowing yourself to be fully known because once you're fully known, then you can accept love. Because, and I'll tell you for some of you guys, and don't tell your wives this or spouses or boyfriends, but even if you have a slip like a year in, if you tell them, they're going to be pissed, they're going to be upset, they're going to be angry, they're not, it's not going to be a good night. But I promise you, there's a part of them that says, hmm, this is interesting. 
he's never been honest with me before. And even though I don't like what I'm hearing, he's being honest. And that has profound meaning for the partner, even if you don't have your ship together. By the way, in case you didn't get this, your partners aren't really angry at you because you had sex with other people or had girlfriends. or They're pissed about that, but that's not what breaks their heart. What breaks their heart is they can't trust you anymore. Trust is not parsable. It means it can't be broken into pieces. It can't be disintegrated. So you either trust me or you don't. Here's how it goes for us, though. And I'll get back to denial in a second. I think to myself, well, I've loved this partner. I've loved these kids. I've been really involved in my profession, whatever that is. And when they find out when there's a problem with our behavior, we say, well, but no, no, honey, you don't understand. It was just the sex. And every other way, I've been committed to this relationship. I've shown up. I've done my paycheck. You know, whatever I needed to do, I've shown up for you. And we think it's like that our partners or, or people who love us should say, oh, right. They've been great. It's just this little part. I get it. That's how we look at it. When you, when our partners, especially a woman, looks at it, they don't say, oh, well, I get it. I trust part of you. They don't trust anything. And partners will say, as you know, I don't trust anything we've ever had. I don't trust anything we've ever done. I don't think, I don't trust anything you've ever said. And I certainly don't trust anything that's going to happen in the future. And then we look at them like we have three eyes. They have three eyes because we know that we've been very trustworthy in many areas. And why don't they see that? Because once trust is broken, it's gone. It's a plate. You break it. There's always a crack. And your partners, as I said last night, will never look at you ever and think, oh, that's somebody who will always have my back. I mean, when I get married, that's kind of what I want to have this person who I know they, you know, they're number one, they got my back. And number two is they would never, ever, ever go out and deliberately do something that they know would hurt me and do it anyway. That's the thing we break with our partners. Number one, well, number two, the biggest one is, well, number one, that we have their back. And number two, that we would, we actually go out all the time and do things deliberately that we know would hurt them and we don't seem to care. And that for them is a profound break with us because they will never look at us again in the same way. They'll always have to feel for the rest of our relationships, some sense of mistrust, some sense of fear, some sense of vigilance to the fact that they're not quite sure they can trust us. And let me say one more thing about that. I don't want you to understand it. Years and years ago, Scott may know this story. I had a guy who was working for me and he was an intern and he had full access to the office. Everybody did back in those days. And I had a safe in the office where he put checks and petty cash. And one day I walked in and he was in the safe and it was before work. And I said, what are you doing? And he's like, uh, he said, okay, I'll tell you, you know, we're really struggling for money and I've been taking a little bit out of petty cash and I'm really sorry, you know, and of course I was sort of naive back then. And I thought, well, I'll give him another chance and we'll work together again. And that was great. You know, I figured it out. I actually helped him financially and we were fine. And then two years later, I walked in the office early and he was at the safe. Now, what I know is about him, because we worked together, he was putting checks in the safe. He had left some at home and he was running in early to make sure they were in the safe. But my first thought when seeing him in the safe was, he's at it again. So you could only imagine if you put that in context, what your partners think when you're late, when you lie, when you forget something, they are right back to, like I was, that moment where I felt unsafe and this person was doing this. And I go right back to, and in fact, I expect it a little bit when that person's doing this or that, I run to the conclusion that they're probably at it again. So it doesn't take much. It could be simply you're on the phone in a certain way, hiding something, just, you know, and your partners assume you are lying because that, that's their primary assumption. 
just like they assumed when they didn't know this stuff, if you're in a relationship, they assumed we were truthful. They assumed we were honest and they really didn't question us much. And by the way, if you're married or in a relationship with someone and someone says, oh, I can't believe they were the last to know, that's just insulting. Because of course your spouse would be the last to know. They love us. They're the ones who would most not want to think that we would hurt them. They're the ones who are looking for the things that we're doing good and kind of missing the things we're not doing good because they don't want to think about the fact that we might hurt them because we're the most important person to them. So when they find out, they're shocked and they're angry. But the next door neighbor said, oh, he's been doing that for years. And the person at work, like I saw him at Christmas parties. But our spouses don't see that because they don't want to see it. It's like the kid who's murdered five five people and his mom comes into court and says, oh, not my baby. He would never do this. Of course, she has to look at him that way, even though he's got a knife in his hand because she loves her kid and she doesn't want to see him that way. Her denial, not wanting to see her son as he is, is how she feels safe about the fact that he's in prison. Our partner's denial that we would never hurt them, we would never let them down, that we would never do anything deliberately to hurt them, that all gets washed away when we act out and they lose they certainly see us a lot more clearly. There's no more fuzziness. There's no more warmth. There's no more, they are watching like hawks. And let me say one more thing about that before I continue about denial. A lot of you may be experiencing, if you're in a relationship, someone's going through your cell phone. Someone's looking at all your phone records. Someone is finding out where you've been, checking your credit card statements to your last vacation or trip for work to see maybe you've had, in fact, raise your hands if you've had any person in your life doing detective work. Okay, let me look at the other screen. Detective work. Okay. So I just want to say this because I want you to hear it. Your spouses and partners and loved ones are not doing detective work because they want to find you have done something else and catch you in it. It feels like they are. They're just looking, looking, looking to find another thing that they can point at me. And, but that's not what they're doing. And I really want you to hear this. I've worked with spouses a long time. They're looking to trust you again. They're looking and looking and looking with the hope that they won't find anything else, but they don't feel safe. So they have to keep looking and looking and looking because they're afraid that if they make themselves vulnerable to you and open up to you again, and then they find something else, it's going to be devastating. So they're looking and looking and looking, not to prove that you have fucked them up one more time, but to see if they can be safe with you. And that's what they're looking is about because, you know, well, they could just leave you if they weren't that invested. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. If your partners didn't still love you, they'd be out the door. If they're angry and they're looking and they're frustrated, that means they're still really invested. And if you've lost a partner, know that that partner was done. They didn't care what you did, who you were, they were out. But there are people who are actively investigating your life and struggling with what did they not see and what do they need to know about. Those are people who still want to be engaged with you. In other words, that's your it's yours to fuck up. Like you still have a chance there and you can fuck that up if you like. I hope you don't. So I want you to write on your piece of paper this sentence, our most important guide, my most important guide to making decisions. My most important guide to making decisions in life. My most important guide to making decisions in life. And then I want you to underneath that draw two columns. One is addict, and the other says healthy person, or healthy, because addicts are not healthy, in case you didn't know that. So let's start with a healthy person. When they're negotiating their way around the world, 
for healthy people. There's only one real guide to healthy, to good decision-making, to making sure that they are looking out for themselves, trying to do the best they can. Our best guide in life is reality. You can write that down. Healthy people's best guide to life is reality. I'm sitting in front of a table. If I didn't see the table and I was walking, I would rock right into it. The reality of this table being here and the fact that I can see it keeps me from getting a bruise and hurting myself. These things on my face, they're here so that I can see reality more clearly, so that I can have a better focus on what's happening. The more clearly I can see a business relationship, who's going to get involved with my family, the more clearly I can assess people and situations, the healthier I am. Because my decision-making, if I'm a healthy person, is based on my best understanding of what's happening around me. And by the way, one of the reasons we go to therapy, especially with our partners, is because we're not seeing things clearly, or we don't see them clearly, or we need to get a healthier view of what reality is. Oh, they're really feeling this. I didn't know that. When I say this, they say this, and I thought it was this. When you find out it would know that's what they meant, you're seeing a reality more clearly. So on every level, emotional, physical, psychological, educational, our ability to understand the most, the best truth we can find and follow that is our North Star. However, for addicts, our primary guide to decision-making is not reality. It's our desire to do what we want to do. My guide to reality is the ability to keep a consistent relationship with my addiction, meaning my reality is about whatever I can do to maintain that consistent relationship with that behavior. So I'm not choosing health. I'm choosing this disease, disorder, because I am aiming my life choices and decisions around a goal, not reality. So it's nice to have that goal of wanting to have sex with as many people as you can, but the idea that it's not going to hurt anyone, not gonna, that's denial. Reality is, if I did this, it might destroy my relationship. If I keep doing this, I'm going to hurt my job. If I keep doing this, it's going to affect my education or my family. Or, but I say to myself, well, I can do this and no one will know. I can do this and get away with it. That defines not being healthy because healthy people choose reality and their best version of reality to make their decisions. We not only don't choose reality, we make up our own. And we said to ourselves, that's the one that I can live in. I can see prostitutes. I can have affairs. I can go to strip clubs. I can use a lot of porn. And my goal, and Scott said this at the beginning. He, he didn't say it this way, but I'll say it this way. I never want to sit in another Thanksgiving table with people I love and think, I can't wait to get out of here to call a lover. I can't wait to hook up. I can't wait to get on an app. I can't wait to make sure he or she is thinking of me. I never want to spend another holiday being so disintegrated from the people that I love. And this idea, and by the way, they say things to us like, you seem distant. You don't seem available. We haven't been intimate in a while. Why do you seem so far away? They feel it. And then we deny their reality. This thing that partners call gaslighting is when they accurately know and feel what's going on. And we say, nah. You know, I say, oh, honey, I'm going to be home at 630. And then when I come at 830 and my spouse says, I thought you were coming home at 630. I say, I never said that. I don't know. What makes you think that? It was always 830 because I don't want them to find out what I was doing between 630 and 830. So I deny them their reality. I try to get them to join me in uh, denial. They have to deny our partners. If they are seeing what we're doing and we tell them that we're not doing it, they have to deny their own feelings, their own reality in order to stay with us. 
And that's their goal, by the way. They give up on reality to hold on to the relationship and to hold on to us. They are more willing to follow us down a rabbit hole than give up the relationship because they love us. So if your primary goal is to act out, to have sex, to be with your fair partner, and engage in the porn, and not to follow what is very clearly to you a good decision, then you are an addict. Because addicts are defined as people who make poor life choices because they are driven to, because that's their priority. If the sex and love and uh, uh, strip clubs and porn and master, if that's your primary focus, then that denial is preventing you from having a healthy life because you will choose the sex or in whatever form over what you know is health. And you know what's health. Like, I don't have to tell you guys that, gee, I should be consistent. Gee, I should be doing my work. I should be home on time. I shouldn't be looking at porn at work. But you already know. But you tell yourselves that it wasn't that big a deal, that you can get away with it, that it won't make a difference in your lives. And that is denial. That is you protecting what you want to do, us protecting what we want to do from the people that we love. Because if they found out, or did not, it would all come crashing down, as it often does for you guys. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.